This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode of Marketing Trends features an interview with Chris Bondi, CMO of LogDNA. Chris is a super sharp marketer. She's a three-time CMO with more than 20 years of marketing experience, mostly in the startup and technology space. On this episode, Chris talks to us about her best practices for how CMOs can drive growth at startups, how to build a movement, and some common misconceptions around sales and marketing alignment. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click the link in the show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. Joining me in studio, Chris, what's going on? I am thrilled to be in studio with you. I am as well. And we are going to talk about all things early stage CMO because you have an extensive background in being a startup CMO. We're going to be talking a little bit about building a movement and maybe do a little sales marketing alignment towards the end. But before we get into all of that, what are you working on currently at Bitnami? Well, Bitnami has a lot of things going on. Bitnami is known for its open source catalog of applications and components that are available on all cloud providers, as well as its application packaging, which enterprise companies are doing. But mostly what I'm working on today is our movement within the Kubernetes ecosystem. We have a lot of projects that get developers excited, and that leads it into them adopting adopting it in the enterprise. Bitnami is pretty interesting because, oh, it's interesting for many reasons. Um, but one of the interesting things that it's a YC company or for those of our listeners who are outside of the Valley or maybe just don't know, uh, Y Combinator is a, is a startup. Uh, is it an incubator or accelerator? I never know. It, I believe Y Combinator is an accelerator. And it's like one of the best in the world, all sorts of crazy companies that that you know of, household names that, that came out of there. Um, and you joined the team not too recently, but um, but pretty recently. Why were you so excited about the opportunity? So Bitnami is at the stage that is a sweet spot for me, pretty much, which is it has fantastic technology, has a fantastic team, and was primed for growth. And that is three of the things that I look for. Uh, always has to have a great product, but it also needs that, uh, what I would call the, what many people would call the blue sea, where there's just a lot of, a lot of places we can go and a lot of growth we can have. So it was at the perfect time. Did you find that joining at an early stage, like as you've done a few times, you've also been a founder before, that there are certain things that might seem kind of scary to the outside CMO if you've never done that or if a marketer's never jumped in that, but are really just an exciting opportunity for you? 
I think it depends on what type of person you are. And you have to really think about it. I know a lot of people who have come from a uh, a few particular large Bay Area companies that will decide they want to be a be in a startup company. And some of them make the transition and some of them, not to say they weren't working before, but it's a lot of work. And it's a different kind it's of work. It's a different type of work and it's a lot of building. So for me, the reason why I'm usually brought in is for three reasons. I'm brought in for go to market, ramp the front of the pipeline through opportunities significantly and make a company famous. And if you know what your thing is that you're brought in to do, then that is, then it's an easier thing that you go like, okay, these are the things I'm doing. What are all the things I'm going to need to build? And then what type of team am I going to need to build? And you have to be somebody who wants to be a builder, who's passionate about it. And frankly, I think you also need to be passionate about mentoring a team because it's the only way you're going to be successful if you have people who want to come along on the journey. Do you find that the founders that you've worked with in the past, specifically early stage, I mean, I'm sure there's a variety of, of different kinds. And I, and I guess you can kind of speak broader to just trends or, you know, your peers or different things like that, that the CEO or the leadership team, the founding team, when they're hiring a first time CMO are saying, hey, I don't know what I don't know. And we need you to come in and do what you do, uh, you know, do your playbook sort of thing. Or is it more of this is exactly what I want? Um, can you do this? Yes or no? Or maybe a mix of the two. Uh, you're right. Founders are different. And I've worked with many different types. I think it's more of I've worked with ones who have said, I don't know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. And tell me what to do. My favorite type to work with is and frankly, one of the requirements I have is somebody needs a vision. If there is a spot beyond the horizon that somebody wants to go for, my job is to say, I'll get get us there. We'll yeah. go this way, we'll go that way, we'll get us there. Where it's difficult is when a founder doesn't doesn't have a vision. If if I ask you what what your vision is and you say to get to your series B or to hit 10 million, 10 million ARR, that's not a vision. That's that's a benchmark. And it's something you need to hit but it's not that that light beyond the horizon and you know there again there's some founders that need a lot of education i don't mind educating along the way but it's if it's somebody who has a here's where we're here's where we want to go then we can all build it together i think that a lot of the founders that i talk to specifically who have no marketing background really struggle with kind of the classic, like, what does marketing do conversation? Have you had those a couple of times in your career? I've had them more than a couple of times, times in my <laughs> career. Fortunately, I've never had it after I'm actually working. Yeah, that yeah, would be a good. totally different issue. Yeah, that's a bad conversation. Um, I've had it more of not asking what does marketing do, but assuming that marketing only does an, a niche of things. And, and I think it's frankly marketing's fault sometimes where they think that you know, marketing brings in leads. And the reality is that when I do measurement, although we'll look at how many leads come in, I always say that measurement starts at marketing qualified leads 
And what really matters is sales accepted leads and opportunity. Yeah. Because if you give me enough money, I can put any amount in the top of the funnel. So I, it's not that I don't look at that number, but I, I don't care as much about that number. What I really care about is the sales accepted leads and the opportunities and the conversion rates that go between MQL, SQL, SQL to SAL and SAL to opportunity and then close, obviously. What type of attribution do you use? And like, what's I don't know if you have certain models or a playbook that you particularly subscribe to. Like, what is the type of stuff that best practices, um, Chris, best practices? So my best practices are ones that other people will disagree with depending on who they are and if they're a vendor. Part of that is Salesforce is the database of record, which means I don't hold any, uh, there are no leads that are held at bay in the marketing automation. We start with Salesforce and then we do a bilateral sync. So what that means is the other way of doing it, which is that you're holding them at bay, that's assuming that you're trying to stop the sales team from touching leads before they're ready. The reality is if you give them things that are qualified, they're not going to want to touch the things that aren't qualified. Yeah, totally. And it also gives us the ability to, to measure against what's in that database and to do some more interesting things um, with uh, the type of a combination of both account-based marketing and targeted accounts. So we, or, or like targeted accounts, um, so cohorts. So that's the approach. You asked about attribution. The, the type of attribution that we do is I customize Salesforce to have not only lead source and lead source detail, but I create a marketing panel that has lead first lead source, first lead source detail, most recent lead source, most recent lead source detail, as well as the um, MQL date, the recycle date, the return from recycle date, and uh, the touches. I think that's about what's in there. So part of what I'm tracking then is how things are not just, did you come in through a, a conference that we were at? You may have come out, come in through a conference that was a year ago, but you then had responded to a webinar and what that webinar topic was. So the attribution would end up being webinar, the, the lead source detail would end. So it'd be most recent would be webinar for lead source. Most recent lead source detail would be security webinar FQ19 Q1 April 4th. I'm a little obsessive about it. Oh, I love it. And um, and so from that, we're able to see not only where you came from, but what was the thing that converted you? If I can give a little more color on that, I once was with a company that the VP of finance and I were having a passionate discussion <laughs> about attribution. And his point was, why were we doing content marketing? Because it was the people who had uh, who had requested a demo on our website that were the conversion ones. And I spent a lot of time, uh, I think that to prove my point, I think I was there until four in the morning analyzing all this data, but I got my answer, which was if somebody came in just from whatever source it ended up being, they came in and they requested a demo, they had a 46% chance of becoming an opportunity. But the people who first had downloaded our content somewhere else and then came in 
and request a demo had a 73% chance of becoming an opportunity. So if I didn't do attribution and do it at a massive degree, I would never know that. It's a great point because I think it speaks to this, the confusing nature of people not matriculating through the funnel in a way that you a want them to, thought they should, or kind of the older version of like, yeah, they're just going to go from from here to here and here to here and, and then and then it's close sale. You know, the person who comes in at the very end and then finally take action to request demo. It's like, what if each of those things, I mean, you know this, but but the idea of like explaining this to the person is like each of those things informed an additional out of 100, 10% to this person's knowledge of the ecosystem, to our product, to other products, to all these sort of things. And then that last thing was the thing that pushed them over the edge. If you were to say, well, every every time someone does this, you're just, you're not really looking at the entire you know, funnel, do you find that expl- having those conversations is something that obviously you use, you know, data to show, um, but are there other, you know, outside of data things, any qualitative measures that you use um, to explain this to people? I do a fair amount of education outside of the sales and marketing. Let me explain where we are in our process. So, to the point where, and it's not down to the numbers, but I try to bring the whole the whole organization along in, frankly, improving marketing has a role. Yeah. To the point where uh, at Bitnami, one of the programs that I've put into place that didn't come from, I can't take credit for it because it came from the suggestion of one of our engineering divisions. And then he, he brought it out to the rest of engineering is that I now run a program every three weeks. I teach a course that is marketing for engineers. That's great. We've done booth duty. We've done presenting on zoom. We have a fantastic content, uh, content manager. And she did one on what makes good blog posts because we use a ton of content from our engineers. And then I was just with the whole team in our civil office. And I did a live version of how to present at a conference. And that's not speaking to the to the numbers part of it, but I would say that from their own words, from what I've heard from the engineering team, they have an appreciation for marketing. They're not going to care about the attribution part. But what it means is that when I hopefully when I say to somebody on a team this needs to be tracked correctly and you know we need it to be able to so that we can then predict what will be the most appropriate thing for us to do i've gained some credibility by doing things that were not specifically just the number part what about sharing the you know some people do the uh, how the sale happened posts or those sort of things mm-hmm. internally uh, and i know that's normally like a sales function but curious to see if you know, you weave in marketing to that of, hey, this person engaged with, you know, three of our, the assets that we have out there. One was something that we, you know, used a newsletter to drive them towards, blah, 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 blah. Um, so they see some of the touch points. That's a good point. Yes. We have biweekly demo calls. And what the demo calls are is for the whole 
company will have different engineers will demo what they're working on. In the case of marketing, I will take them through a, here are six SALs, sales accepted leads. Here are six sales accepted leads. Here's the time frame of what happened first. They downloaded from here. This is what they downloaded, exactly what you've said. And sometimes I'll do it where I take existing opportunities and I'll say, here's a, here's a new opportunity. Here are the different touch points. I think the other thing it's important for marketing to do is to not, not only talk about what marketing has done, but talk about this came in through partner sales. And this is one of the things that our partner has done because the reality is I lose credibility yeah. if I pretend that marketing is running everything. Numbers are not, our friends are not our enemies. They're just numbers. Yeah. The important thing is for us to be able to to measure. And if the reality is that if marketing is touching and, and move, helping move things along, that's great. If something comes in from somewhere else, we still are touching and helping move things along. And not only just when it becomes an opportunity, but even after the fact, one of the other things that people don't think about is the need for sales tools. Yeah. And so we have somebody who is focused on the end user. And so what she's doing is creating videos and how to, and that's the person who's working very closely with the engineers to create these materials that will help move our sales along in a more smooth and a faster process. Since you have a lot of experience and have done this before and you know are recommended, not everyone has that, right? Not everyone has... Um, you know, a playbook that they can walk in with and say, I've executed this multiple times. This is what works. And, you know, here's, here's my, uh, you know, the Chris case study of how I've done this for other companies. If someone was new to going to be a startup CMO or, you know, it could be a VP, but any of this head of marketing role first, how would you go about assessing the company to work for of like, how would this be a good fit? And then how would you kind of um, say this is this is what I would go in with to show that you know what the heck you're doing. So the assessing beforehand, I can only say how I assess. Yeah. So I look at things as a VC. So everyone, every founder you talk to should be excited about their company and they should think that it has a great potential. So you need to take a step back and say, okay, they're excited. No one's going to love your baby as much as you love your baby. Uh, so they're excited. What is the opportunity? And you need to you need to do a market opportunity analysis or a SWOT of that company before you ever walk in the door. Like your own version. Your own version, yes. You know, so I I look on Crunchbase, see who they who who they raised from. Sometimes I'll even look to see which the which is the partner at the VC firm and look to see what they're who they've who they've backed in the past. So does the partner who is backing X company actually have a background of backing X type of company? Then I look at the management team, see what their experience is in the space or what their functionality experience is. Are they a first, it's not a bad to be a first time CEO, but do they have experience in that space or in that function? Then I, uh, then as I talk to them, I, I really switch over and I start thinking about the culture. And part of it is, frankly, because where I want to place, I want to spend my time. But the other part of it is, is the culture one where I think that the team will be able to work well together? 
how well the team works together is significant. So I look at all that. I look at the, I ask about the numbers around their, not only the churn of their customers, but their internal churn. Yeah. And then that relationship with that salesperson is going to be so important. And both from how we work together, but do we have the same mindset? So if it's a SaaS company, what is their playbook? A lot of times the salesperson will be there first. I would prefer the salesperson to be there first. So that's part of what I'm looking at. I'm looking at all those things. So that's from my assessment point of view. And then how much I like the people too, obviously. Uh, And then the second part of it is, you know, what are those things? When I ask that, when I ask the, the founder about not only what their needs are, if they've raised recently, so I usually come in and it's a B or a C round often. I'll say that last raise you did, what promise did you make oh, that's for a good that one. raise? And it's really important because that promise they made gives me an understanding of what they need to work, what they need to work on and what the expectations of not only the founder, but we all work for the board. And so what's the expectation of that board? I also, as part of the assessment, always ask to talk to board members. Really? Yes. The board members should want to talk to the CMO and vet it anyway, but I want to talk to the board members because I want to get a sense of where the board members have their head. So that's, again, part of the assessment. So when I know when I know all that, if the company is often, it's around demand gen. Yeah. And so then I look for early wins. So I'll give an example from a past company where they didn't have an SDR. They had somebody who was scheduling things they, and they had three salespeople, but they didn't have a true SDR. And so what I said to the VP of sales is, we will eventually have incredibly qualified leads that will be very aligned to your team. But in getting there, I'm not going to choke the process before we get there. So we're going to start with opening up and getting you more leads. And then we're going to put in qualification. And then we're going to make it tighter qualification. And and doing that in step process, instead of just saying, now we have a qualification process. The reality is that whole, that whole thing of those steps took 40 days for us to get to the leads that they wanted in a much more advanced volume and better conversion rates. But if I had just come in and said, you know what, we need to do marketing qualified leads now and no more things are going to your team, I would have lost them. So instead, I was upfront about how we were going to do it and then we followed that process. And so I think that if you address whatever the major issue is at first, figure out the process, not only of what you need to do, but how you're going to take everyone along in that process so that everyone's smiling through the process instead of hating you in the beginning. Because if they hate you in the beginning, you won't get to the other part of it. Yeah, it's a brilliant insight because I think a lot of people, this is, and we talk about playbooks a lot of times uh, on the podcast, but I think that this is kind of where when playbooks go wrong, right? Is you're going to come in and you're like, yeah, we need we need to take all these leads and have a very rigorous process to uh, to vet all these. And like, this is what an SAL is and this is what an SQL is, is an MQL. And meanwhile, this is probably their first, you know, the first time they're even getting leads potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, 
hey, we finally just got these things and to just go in and kind of, like you said, put a choke on this. The other thing is when you do that, you remove a level of serendipity from this conversation because a lot of times, especially in an early stage company, you're learning from the conversations that aren't good. And that's part of the thing. Um, and we could talk a little sales marketing alignment now that that's one of those things that those especially early days for those sales reps, you learn a ton about customers that aren't a perfect fit. Because if you were only talking to like the most qualified leads, you're not really hearing all of the other things that you need to hear. Did you find that aligning those things, that trying to figure that stuff out, that having that kind of slower like ramp process at times and figuring out when to speed it up, uh, speed up or slow down the conveyor belt, was that just something you learned over time or were there certain insights that you had that uh, or triggers that you were like, oh, this is why I need to do this? I think every company, this is going back to the every company yeah, is totally. different. Um, so I think that there are, I'm sure I've learned it over time and I most definitely have learned it over time. And, and part of it is, is that I've also worked with companies that have, I also work with companies that are in the process of going public. So it's, you know, you come in at different times, they have different needs. Part of the way that I've figured out what that needs to be is early on to try to be on sales calls and to listen in sales calls because that way I'm hearing firsthand. And it's not that the sales team doesn't give feedback. It's just that a lot of times it's not even getting what what the person had said, but it's now how has my salesperson responded to that? Totally. And so to really understand that conversation is really important. And I think that it is, um, if you don't have that, then then you're missing it. I think that sometimes a mistake that a, uh, a CMO will do is at probably any size company, but particularly in, in early stage companies, is they will create the messaging and think that they're done. Or, or want to be done, you know. It's it's very difficult to create messaging and have put a lot into it and not say, and here's the messaging document and we're done. The reality is it is an iteration and in some ways it is an art. This is where science and art meet even more than the numbers is that making sure you're still getting that feedback of what's working, what isn't working, what do they care about, and part of the reason that you also need to be part of the process is is to really learn your sales team because sometimes a salesperson will say, oh, they really care about why. And the question to ask is, did they bring that up themselves or were they very excited when you talked about it? Totally. Like, are you leading the witness? I mean, it's one of the things... And you don't realize that you're leading the witness. Yeah, it's one of the things that... Um, you know, it's the best sales folks are prepping the entire conversation to get to the point where it's like, we're the only solution for this. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, if you believe all of the things that I'm telling you right now, if you're, if I'm crafting this story and it's not, it's not deceptive. It's not like you're lying or anything like that. It's just that all of the components of our products put together makes you, you know, gives you the superpowers that, um, that this product kind of gives you. But you're bringing up, think, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I was just, I got excited. Um, but, but to that point, the reason I need to know whether they brought it up on their, their own or whether 
you brought it up and they cared about it is the difference even of the point of they brought it up on their own, then I should probably have some demand gen around that. Or you brought it up and they got excited, I should have a sales tool around that that is after they're already in the process. Those are two different pieces, two different times in their lifespan, in their journey. And for me to know whether they are proactively excited about it or reactively excited about it will matter what type of materials my team comes up with. Yeah, and that it's the difference between, and we talk a lot about category creation. We just had the awesome CMO of Tenable, JJ. She's affectionately known. Um, and we talked a lot about category creation, this idea that like category creation at its at its you know root is obviously something that no one is searching for or they're searching for bits of this or whatever. So if you're creating something and evangelizing a new category or product or whatever it is, there's probably nobody searching for it because it's a blue ocean that you're creating, right? So if nobody's searching for it, then you definitely don't want to write an SEO optimized piece around that phrase. Uh, or maybe you do because you want to start ranking for it or, or whatever it is. But my my point being is that if the if the rep is painting this picture using all of this terminology uh, and the person's saying like, oh, that's I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that. This is really interesting. This is a fascinating topic for me. To your point, you, you're not going to make the right tool if you're just saying, hey, they're pumped up about about X. How many how many sales calls were you sitting in on? I mean, and how many is do you have your whole team doing this? Is this just you? Um, like, what does that look like? Um, I will tell you, I don't sit on as many sales calls as I should. <laughs> um, and because you're trying to do a lot at once, I will also say that I, for the most part, it's me, but I try to have a demand gen person as well. And I usually have the S the SDRs under me. No, no kidding. Yeah. Buried the lead. Why do you do that? I've now done that several times because no one cares as much about the leads being qualified and being right than marketing. And the sales team and the head of sales should be focused on closing business. So I work very aligned with the sales team. So I'll give you an example from from a company where the... Uh, well, I can say it because it was fantastic, is fantastic, fantastic VP of sales at IronIO. And before every quarter, we would shut ourselves in a conference room and we would talk about what the goals were for the company, the, the number goals, and then talk about, you know, what is our current, what's our current deal size. And then we went from two different angles of, okay, well, that means that if that's the average deal size, this is how many we need to close. And then did the what the conversion rates we had seen from previous and went up and down the funnel of what it should be. And and then I would map it out over the three months that it would take to two and a half to three months it would take to close. So we would do that at the, before every quarter. And he and I were both a bit obsessive compulsive. So I know we were looking at it every day, but we would at the end of each month, we would meet and go through the numbers again to make sure we were on target. And that process was incredibly aligned. There was a time where, because uh, we still had the teams in a pod of an AE, a SE, and a, an SDR. 
It's just the SDR reported to me. Yeah. So part of what we did also was to it's make It's a cross-functional sure, team at that cross-functional point. Cross-functional team. One yeah. of the things we made sure was that there was a path for the SDRs to progress and become an AE if they wanted to, or to, um, if the if he was also open to hiring them, obviously, but we had that worked out between us. For me, having the SDR at the, at the marketing table works out well because it's really tough to sit across from somebody and say, if I were the SDR and you were the, a and you were the demand gen person, it's tough for me as the SDR to say, this guy sitting across from me is giving me garbage. And it's tough for the demand gen person to say, this guy who's sitting across from me, he's not working he's not anything closing. I have. Yeah, he's not totally closing. Agree. You know, and we had it so worked out that, and I've, I've now seen this at, a, at several places where not only do we have that alignment, but we have the AE saying, this lead that you gave worked out really well. That's going to be an opportunity. And based on, you know, oh, this particular use case. So we had this at, at Iron where an AE came back and said, this particular use case was fantastic. And the demand gen person then looked to see the attribution to see what they came in on. We created more demand gen. We, he, the person doing the demand gen, created more demand gen around that. At the same time, the SDR tweaked his questions to be able to qualify for that more. And within the course of a quarter, we suddenly had a significant amount of business in the pipeline that was around that particular use case, all because everyone was aligned in the process and everyone was open to hearing what was working and what wasn't working. And then because we had so much good attribution. So before we started on when we were talking um, in the green room, proverbial green room, uh, you had kind of said how you think that sales and marketing kind of doesn't necessarily have as big of a rift as uh, some people might have you believe. And I kind of figured out why you think that because you have a great attribution model and you have a great working relationship with uh, with your salespeople so, or with your sales teams. Um, and it all, it all clicks now. It all yeah. makes sense. There, there's, I've been fortunate. It has. Um, there's one other thing that I've done because I don't like arguing, which is I split the band. So the lead qualification and... Let me actually say what BANT is in case somebody yeah, I, doesn't know what BANT is. So BANT is how you qualify for an opportunity, and that is budget, authority, need, and time, uh, and timing. And so those are the four things that are supposed to be in place to be able to create a opportunity. What I've done is I've split the BANT so that the SDRs, it's not just, oh yeah, we've qualified them. They've quali they qualify specifically for a authority in this case it is the person is either the decision maker or they're an influencer usually somebody who's been put in charge of finding uh finding the purchase and the other part of that is the need and it's not a need we can sell to it's the need we want to sell to yeah and so that happens by the sdr then it becomes a sales qualified lead when the sales team accepts the uh, accept them, accepts a meeting, then it's a sales accepted lead, which is what they're commissioned on. Who's commissioned the SDRs? The SDRs. Yep. And then the the AE is qualifying for timeline and access to budget. And then the, we have the four things that are put together to be able to create an opportunity. That's really interesting. Now I get it. Split the band. Yeah. 
Um, that's like, I was like, that's some pretty hardcore lingo, but that's great. That's really interesting. Do you find that there's still strife though, between the, you know, the gal sitting there, like, could you, could you just accept it? Just take the meeting? Um, no, no, I've, I have, I truly have never seen that because ultimately I'm in the meetings that are about the opportunities. And if something doesn't move along, I'm in the executive team that's asking, why do we have opportunities that aren't moving along? Or why are these sales accepted leads not becoming opportunities? Yeah. The reality is that that's my job as the CMO is, is to focus on how does everything work and how do we move things along so that we can actually sell it? I want to switch gears a little bit towards movement building. We talked before the episode about a book that you read recently about the founder of Moz, or from the founder of Moz, I guess he wrote it. Uh, Rand Fishkin's really interesting if uh, folks want to check it out. But this idea, and he's a great example of someone who built a movement around around their company, Moz. Um, why do you think it's important that founders and companies build a movement around something? And we've touched a little bit uh, in the category creation stuff about kind of tactically how you create a category category and that sort of stuff. But I'd love to hear from you just like what goes into this? Why does this even matter? So there's a there's a bit of difference between though it supports it, there's a bit of difference between category creation and creating a movement. I will say that first my setup. I think a company can be successful without creating a movement. I no longer think a company can be wildly successful without creating a movement. Or if they can, it'll be for only a period of time. I think that this is where we're going. So the difference would be of a, think of somebody with a Motorola phone. We're going back a few years. Think sure. of somebody with a Motorola phone and then set, and then going into an iPhone, a, a, a Apple store. And there are people there who are not only the geniuses, but you'll find somebody who is, some somebody else who is an enthusiast who two enthusiasts will will be talking and and showing each other what to do on a phone neither of them work for apple yeah um that 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 example came out of um a book called the participation revolution which is a great book and i think i'm going to get the name wrong but i think it's neil gordon i think is the the author but a really good book that talks about this um Another one is a book from the founder of Tough Mudder. All of these pieces, what they're talking about and what I totally agree with is that we're moving towards a, a portion of time where it's not me talking to you, but it is us talking about this thing that we're excited about. You may happen to purchase along the way. It's my job to make sure you want to purchase along the way, but it is the enthusiasm around that. So what that means is that the brand is no longer what you, it's no longer just my logo and the brand attributes that you see as a, you know, this is the Chris Bondi brand and this is how you think of her. It's more of how we interact and you getting excited about, it, which also means that people who work for me. So if, if, I don't like this version that I just gave as Chris Bondi's a company. So <laughs> let's pretend I didn't give that as the example. But sure. if we're talking 
the company is uh, the company is called Eyeglass. If the company is Eyeglass, then everyone in the company should be excited about how they get to be part of Eyeglass, and that means that they are not because they're being told. But because we have given the, we've given them a path. We've given them something to participate in. So, do you think that this is like B two B specific? I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Yeti coolers, for example, as like one of the premier brands that built a community around their product. Like, there's lots of ones that I think are out there that are that are popular that became, you know, especially with, uh, you know, Virality and things like that. Like Yeti, something where I mean, they are going to pay three times as much for a Yeti than they are for something else because of their part of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the B2B side, you see like Splunk's a great example of like became super popular, super beloved. And then you hear people talk about the product and they're just like, this, this is freaking great. And kind of have that, uh, you know, that thing, which I think those are kind of product centric Thoughts. Those are product centers of like how they use the product. And I think kind of what you're talking about is what is the evolution of that? What is this customer experience? You know, customer experience, obviously a huge buzzword, but what is the experience around the product that keeps you in the ecosystem, that keeps the ecosystem fresh, that makes something beyond what you're just getting when you at point of sale? Uh, two things. One is you asked if it was specifically B2B. I think it's even more so in the consumer space. Uh, I think it's harder in B2B. I think that the dev community and, you know, you would use Funk as an example. The dev community is the place where you have more of that. Uh, You have people who are, although it may have a negative connotation, I would say the true believers, um, at least the enthusiasts. And it goes beyond product at times. So, you know, a company could be, uh, a company could stand for change and a different way of of approaching problems, and that could go beyond who that who that company is and what they what their specific product is. So, uh, again, if we go to the consumer space, then I would think things like I may be selling bicycle tires, but what I'm doing in the community is running shops on how to, uh, how, in fact, actually in the Bay Area, a good example would be Sports Basement. Sports Mm. Basement is, for those of you not in the San Francisco Bay Area, is a uh, group of athletic stores. And that particular uh, chain of athletic stores, they give free space for community groups to meet. They uh, are involved in the community that the schools have discounts. And they, that they will have days where the schools can come and people from certain schools can come and get a discount or something like that. They do things that are very much a, we're all in this together. So when when we were in the middle of the drought and it didn't snow forever, they had 50% off until it snows. And it was, yeah, yeah. but then they, uh, once it started snowing, then they had trips to the, to the snow and it's all those things where they pretty much have put themselves in the middle of the community without selling all the time. And I think that that's a really good example of a company that has 
has moved beyond the us and them. And that's really what I mean by a movement. It's no longer us and them. I'm selling to you. It's more of we're all in this together. We're all going along on this journey. And you can buy, you buy things from me along the way, but we're all going on this journey. And if we end up that you are not buying from me, you still will learn things along the way. You could still get excited. Yeah, one of the things that we believe a mission and one of the things we're super focused on is what does the content look like for those type of companies? I mean, I think I think it's a really good point that you need to build stuff for your ecosystem that is beyond just the physical products that you're selling or digital products that you're selling. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that thinking about what types of content are they consuming is something, you know, we obsess about all the time, but it's such an interesting thing because there's so many things to create for an ecosystem that go beyond just, you know, whatever that thing is. Um, and you think of the best, you know, content marketing or uh, what do you, whatever you want to call it, branded content or just marketing um, ever. It's things like the Michelin rating star system that, you know, Michelin created so that people got out of their houses to drive for restaurants or, um, you know, things like that, that I think added value to the community first without, you know, pushing sales first. And I think, again, it's not that pushing sales first is a bad thing. It's that there's, there's value everywhere to create, Mm -hmm. um, out of nothing that you can, you know, that the classic zero to one conversation, you can bring something brand new that has never been into the world for your ecosystem in a way, whether that's a tool, whether that's um, a book, a guide, a movie, a TV show, you know, when we look at content or a million of other things, you know, I think conferences, we've seen those be hugely successful, but a lot of those I think have kind of devolved back into a lot of it being just like, we want to see these people hang out and learn some stuff, which is awesome. Um, But I think that there's a lot of meat on the bone for marketers to be creative and to create the future, like create these things. Like we're the ones who get to do creative stuff, uh, which is super exciting. I think so. I think that there is, and you had mentioned conferences. So I would say one of the places that seems to be the, um, I'm going to say the most pure, and that's really not the right way to say it, but we'll go with the most pure, is if you go to an open source conference. An open source conference is by definition, so focused on what can we build and then what can you suggest building into this? What can I suggest building into this? And what we end up with from that is something that we all end up being able to use. And I think that that and then companies building on that and that ends up being the rub of a company needs to then figure out a good model and to make sure that they have done their have really assessed the market opportunity to make sure that somebody actually wants to pay for it. Yeah, but, 100%. Uh, but once you've done that, there are extremely successful companies that have come up on open source that have, um, you know, it's a great example of where it is very much focused on how can multiple people work on something and all have a belief that they argue there too. But, but that we're all moving in a certain direction and then benefit from that. And I think this idea of just open source in general, but this idea that 
you know, like kind of the rising tide, right? I think that that's the thing that's exciting. And when you're thinking about that as a marketer, it's like, if this is really going to be beneficial to the people who buy from us, again, that might be, you know, dog walking. It might be, um, you know, tools for their team. It might be, we had someone on the podcast who was talking about how they built a tool that was just for SMBs. Um, and millions of people downloaded it. So there's all sorts of things like that that you can build that are value add for the ecosystem that aren't a direct sales opportunity, but enhance the pipeline and add value to the pipeline in a way that people will remember you for. And that's what it's about. It's about being remarkable. Well, and you know, if we go full circle with this and we start talking about it as demand gen, having training available to people up front even if it's training on something that is, it's not training on necessarily on your tool, but it is training that may happen to use your tool, but it is a how-to overall. That is something that will be incredibly, will be incredibly well-received because it it's not sneaky, but it's not overtly salesy either. And that is something that, in fact, I had mentioned the work that I'm doing with with our engineering team. Our engineering team recently came to me and said, uh, somebody in the engineering team had suggested that we start doing how to do XYZ. And it'll use our tools and our Kubernetes projects, but it was to build more in the community. And that was something that I can't take credit for that wasn't me coming up with a that uh, that particular idea in that moment that was an engineer coming up with that and i said that's fantastic when can you do that for me <laughs> i love that getting those getting from the ground level actually what they need is always always great um let's get into some lightning round questions are you ready for these fast and easy questions uh sure just like our friends at pardot fast and easy marketing automation with Pardot. Lightning round question number one. What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? Uh, my Solitaire. Ooh, Solitaire. <laughs> All right. I like uh, that. It's like pineapple poker or something like that. It's pretty great. <clears throat> What's your favorite follow on social media? Uh, I use Twitter and I um, am somewhat obsessed with following the BBC. That's pretty good. At K-B-O-N-D-I. We'll link it up. Show notes. Good follow. Check her out. What about your favorite getaway? Anyone who works with me will laugh at that because I um, I have a problem with not taking vacations. <laughs> um, I do remember that I liked Mendocino and um, yeah, I travel a lot for work. I and I don't mind traveling. So we'll just go with I if I could take a vacation, I would go to Mendocino. Mendocino's great. I love Mendocino. Favorite book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Actually, what I'm in the middle of listening to is the audiobook of Bad Blood. Oh man, you'd like the third person who's mentioned <laughs> Bad Blood. I so I <laughs> am not I feel like I've got enough of it, but I don't know. Sell me on. Is it? Okay. So here's my reasoning. Why. I just, it's like watching a train wreck. And no, I know there's. No, no, no. Here's, here's my reasoning why. 
it wasn't that people didn't didn't raise concerns. It was the reasons why each time those concerns were shot down or things moved forward is fascinating. And that is a study in how things can go wrong. Totally. You know, and so it's it's almost more of I'm not I'm interested in in what happened as far as what was done that was misleading, but I'm almost more fascinated of how people with good intentions and it was everything from investors to employees to regulators, how all these different people, it's not that people were blatantly duped or what was blatantly, but it wasn't that there were massive amount of people duped and it was everyone. It was that things came up and they still moved along. And it's just fascinating. It's the group think of, well, somebody else's. If this no, was, if this was, was fake, then somebody else no, would No, it wasn't even that. That really? was the thing where people would say like, oh, but I don't, you know what? I'm just, I don't want to deal with this. You know, and then somebody else would, would raise concerns and then they would be fired. Like, it's just fascinating. What's your best advice for a first time CMO? Know what the board cares about. Know what the goals are and uh, check your ego. We know you're brilliant. That's how you got the job. Find out what needs to happen and then make that happen in short order. You only have so much time to prove that you can do it and that you're going to make a huge impact on the business. That's it. That's all we got. Thanks to our friends at Part Out for the lighting round. Thank you, Chris, for coming in studio today. This has been awesome. I, I love the tactical stuff. I love blending the strategic and the tactical I thought you just did a wonderful job of, of explaining that to our listeners. Thank anything you very we much. mix, anything anything to plug, check out Bitnami. Any uh, any final thoughts? Uh, thank you very much. Bitnami, so everyone knows how to spell it, is B-I-T-N-A-M-I. And we'll link it up in the show notes as well. Great. Thanks so much. We will talk to you soon. Great. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends with Chris Bondi. Shortly after this podcast was recorded, Bitnami was acquired by VMware. You can check out Chris's current company, LogDNA, at LOGDNA.com. Thanks for listening. Marketing Trends is created by the team at Mission.org and sponsored by Salesforce Pardot. World-class marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in the show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you 
can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.